So tonight we're going to continue. We've been uh, running through the book of Acts. Well, sometimes it doesn't feel like running, but we are in chapter 10, uh, which is pretty good. And uh, we are going to continue along in the story. And we're starting a new kind of mini-series. For the, those of you who know how we do it here, we've, we've broken up our traveling through the book of Acts into sort of some mini-series to give them a little bit of uh, continuity and consistency. And we tend to try and discern and, and pray through, well, what is it actually about this section of Scripture that is meaningful and applicable to us as a congregation? Because we believe that God's Word is God's Word revealed uh, once and for all, and it is, uh, you know, the canon of Scripture is God's revelation to, to mankind. But at the same time, it's applicable moment by moment. And God wants to speak to us day by day from his scripture that is eternal. So we seek to, to listen for what that message might be. So we're in Acts chapter 10, and this series that we're entering into is called A New Ground. What we've seen so far in the book of Acts is that the gospel is def- desperately trying to break out of Jerusalem. Jesus gave him the Great Commission. He said that you will be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for a while, the disciples get happy in Jerusalem with all of the stuff that's going on. You know, the Holy Spirit has come and they're doing all of these amazing things. Uh, But the gospel wants to break out of Jerusalem and they needed a push to actually get there. And so we have the moment where uh, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Um, And the greatest thing about persecution, did you know? The greatest thing about persecution is that it doesn't work. It only seeks to uh, expand the message and, and make it stronger. So... The gospel finally breaks out of Jerusalem, and uh, they start to go to Judea and Samaria. And we've seen a couple of important stories about the gospel going to kind of that next sphere of influence, that next outer ring outside of Jerusalem. Over the last couple of chapters, we've seen two very important conversions, uh, one by the Ethiopian eunuch, and the other is the conversion of Saul. The former is uh, the first sort of non-Jewish convert to Christianity. He was a a proselyte born uh, outside of Jewish heritage. Uh, but he had converted to Judaism. And so he is the first one to become a Christian who was not, to begin with, a Jew. And then we have Saul, the conversion of whom, you know, you would have looked at him and a, and a Jew would have said, well, no, he doesn't need any converting. He's actually, you know, the most zealous. He's got everything right. And so in chapter 10, we actually have kind of these two parallel uh, narratives or these uh, two parallel conversions where you have Cornelius, the Roman centurion who is is a Gentile. He's not a Jew at all. In fact, he's not even a proselyte. He's something called a God-fearer, which is somebody who is warm to Jewish faith, but not willing to go the whole way for um, reasons to do with a particular surgical procedure that a lot of men might decide not to go through with. Um, Then we have the the conversion, well, a bit of a misnomer there. Then we have uh, Peter, who also needs no converting, And yet, he has to travel through a journey of transformation in Acts chapter 10. So we see the same narrative kind of play out with these uh, two guys. The new ground that God is breaking in this section is into the hearts of the Gentiles. And for those of you who don't know, the word Gentile is simply a word that means non-Jew. right? And you've, you've got to have a pretty hard line, a distinction, when you categorize the world into two things, Jew and non-Jew. And what we'll see is actually the gospel totally dissolves that barrier. There's no more distinction between uh, Jew and Gentile. And so God wants to break new ground. He wants to take new ground in the hearts of the Gentiles. And that is the work that he's been angling, that he's been trying to do for all of history. It was way back in the promise to to Abraham, even further back in the, uh, what's called the Proto-Evangelion or the the first gospel, 
the early before gospel, uh, which was given to Adam and Eve in, in their promises. God is always after blessing to everyone, that there is no distinction. Salvation is available and free to everyone. But here's the thing that I want us to, to get out of tonight. We've got a long story to kind of travel through, so I want to give you kind of the main impactful points up the front, just in case you fall asleep halfway through. And uh, Liam will go around with a stick and just um, wake you up. Here's the way that it works. When God is taking new ground, he wants to use his people. What, I, what did I have up there? There we go. When taking new ground, God chooses to use his people. I was confused by the other words that I was remembering. When God is breaking new ground, he chooses to use his people. Now, just think about this for a second. Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, rose again on the third day, walked around to his disciples, showed him his hands and his feet, could, you know, transport from one place to another, walk through walls. Whoa, what? Why didn't God leave Jesus on the earth slowly going around? He's immortal, right? He's, he doesn't, death has no power over him, so he would have lived forever. Why didn't Jesus just go on this one long journey throughout the whole world telling everyone, hey, by the way, I'm alive. Like, look, this is what happened. This story is true. Who would have thought that that was a better plan to take God's message to the world? No? God didn't do that. He, in fact, chose to use his people. He chose for Jesus to ascend to heaven and to send the Holy Spirit so that we, out of relationship with him and through the empowering of his presence by his Holy Spirit, would take the message to the world. You know, the reason for that is that that process benefits the messenger just as much as it does the person who is receiving it. And that's what we'll see in this passage. When, when God is taking new ground, he chooses to use his people. By the way, that's you and that's me. God wants to use us. But one of the things that, that needs to happen in that is that God actually needs to break ground in us in order to get us to there, right? So when taking new ground, God has to break new ground in his people because we need a push. Just like the disciples needed a push to get out of Jerusalem, sometimes we need a push to actually get into that space. And we need to just flesh out some of this uh, dynamic here because if we were to talk about using the language of conquest, of you know, taking new ground in a, in a battle sense, the dynamic at play here is actually backwards. Because if you're, if you're taking ground, if you're on a conquest and you're, you're conquering, then it's all to do with the soldiers and their strength and their bravery and their courage, wielding the sword to actually defeat the enemy and take the ground, plant the flag, go, yes, we did it. But all through the Old Testament, we see that, well, yes, the people of Israel did have to fight in order to capture the promised land, but there are so many instances, almost more instances than not, where actually the Israelites don't have to do anything, or all they have to do is get onto the battlefield. You remember the story of Jericho, where they walked around and blew the trumpets. I mean, who's won a war that way? Or the other time where, you know, they blasted trumpets and the Philistines were so confused that they started, you know, attacking each other and, and routing themselves. So many times, God brings the victory without them actually having to do any of the fighting. And the dynamic works for us as we are witnesses, and we need to understand this, is that God is the one who wins the victory. In fact, it is already won on the cross. You and I do not bring people to Christ. God does that, but we can be there when he does it. We can be in there in that moment. 
What is stopping us from being there? What is stopping us from actually getting onto the field where God wants to do stuff? Because we need to recognize that when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to evangelism, evangelism is simply joining the conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with another person. It's simply joining the conversation the Holy Spirit is already having with another person. God wants to use you. He chose not to leave Jesus on earth. He wants to use you. You can't convert anyone. You can't bring someone to Christ. You can't change them or save their soul, but you can be there when God is doing it. So what's the, what's the issue? What's the barrier? What's the problem in getting there? Well, we need to allow God to break that ground in us, to give us the, the courage and the, and the wisdom and, and the, the intuition or, or the, just simply the listening ear to actually be there when we need to be. The victory is dependent on God, but your presence in the field is dependent on the work done inwardly in your heart. And so as we go through this series, I would just like to start by inviting you to consider, to reflect, and this is hopefully a long reflection over the four weeks or so that we're in this series. What new ground is God wanting to take in and around your sphere of influence or your life? Maybe it's something personally or maybe it's something in the context and the sphere that you operate in. Because Christian, you are different You're not the same as somebody who simply goes to work and and their purpose is about money or about status or about accumulating or whatever it might be. You're different. You're you're kingdom bound. You're heaven bound. And so God is wanting to do something in that world around you. And what is it? Would you consider what does God want to do? And then secondly, what's stopping me from walking in that? Is there ground that needs to be broken in me for me to actually get there? So would you be prayerfully considering that as we uh, open his word? tonight. Acts chapter 10, if you've got it with you, it's in the near, near the end of your Bible. You know where Acts is. It, it'll be on the screen. Okay, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generally, uh, generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, this man is a centurion, which means that he's a Roman soldier and that he's uh, over a, a group called the Italian cohort. So he's a leader in the uh, Roman army. And it's interesting that every time we read of a, a centurion in the New Testament, they're given a, like a really glowing review. It's quite a positive thing. Unlike, you know, the Jewish leaders, it's sort of this sort of reversal of expectations. And I think that it has to do with the kind of person that makes a good centurion. The historian Polybius said this about the character of a centurion. He said, centurions are required not to be bold and adventurous so much as good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or start fighting wantonly, but able when overwhelmed and hard-pressed to stand fast and die at their post. Right, so as somebody who would be put in that position is somebody who's going to value things like loyalty and integrity, and they're going to be a steady personality. And so this is probably why we see centurions are generally just sort of, you know, uh, well-grounded people, and it probably also shows why they lean towards Jewish faith. The whole, you know, monotheism, one God rather than the many gods in, in the Roman world, Focus on morality rather than just, you know, crazy immorality in the, in the Roman pagan system. That would have appealed to someone like a, a centurion. And that is to say that he was warm to the Jewish faith without actually being a, a Jew 
himself. And did you know that there are people out there who are warm to the gospel? We are not in a corner of society where God is not already drawing people to himself. There are people out there who, if somebody was to simply be next to them and just open a faith conversation, they would be warm to hear and to receive what was going on. Here is a guy who longed to worship the God of the Jews, but he couldn't. He couldn't fully. And so he did as much as he could without actually, you know, going the whole snip direction. And so he desperately wanted to enter into the temple and to worship in the way that the Jews would, but much like the Ethiopian eunuch, his physical state as well as his station in life prevented him from doing so. That's why he's called a a God-fearer. Uh, Verse 3 says, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, another Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, the prayer is happening at about the ninth hour of the day, which means that he's actually following Jewish custom. It's it's a time of, of Jewish prayer. And it's an incredible thing that God hears him, right? Here is a guy who's not a Jew at all. He's not somebody who should be receiving the grace of God according to what Jews would perceive. And yet... God hears him. God speaks to him. God appears to him. Uh, in the form, uh, God sends an angel to send a message to him. You know, this happened to my father-in-law, who for 30 years was not a Christian but attended church, and he would he refused to call himself a Christian. He had some hang-ups about Jesus, but he kind of believed uh, in God. And yet, throughout that whole time, he's he's someone that you know we would call well. He called himself not a Christian, but throughout that time, God spoke to him through dreams. But at one point, uh, his, his wife, my mother-in-law, was, was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and they were going down the path of uh, operating on it, and God told him in a dream not to operate. This is a non-Christian guy. It doesn't, doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Jesus. God told him in a dream, don't operate. And so he just kind of woke up, and he was like, well, I guess we can't. And they declined the operation, and they found out that week that uh, she was actually pregnant with uh, my wife. And the surgery would have been at great risk to the, to the baby. And that happened sort of throughout his 30-year journey without himself even uh, calling himself a Christian. So we should not assume that God is not speaking or that God does not speak to people who don't call themselves Christians. The people that we think are acceptable are not necessarily the ones that God is thinking about. And so this man, Cornelius, was unacceptable to the religious crowd but acceptable to God, and you can see the way that God responds to him, the way that the angel says all of the vocabulary there, all right? Your prepares, uh, prayers and your arms have ascended, right? Like uh, incense and like as a memorial, right? All of the language that he uses has to do with temple sacrifice. And so Cornelius, who longed to participate in the Jewish faith but could not, God is saying, actually, what you've done here, I'm accepting as though it were there. It's a very meaningful way to express it to somebody who was longing to worship in that way. Now, here's the thing about this situation, right? He's in a a place called Caesarea. 
and it, the angel tells him, go and send for Simon Peter, who's in Joppa, which is a two-day journey away from Caesarea. But do you know who was in Caesarea, who lived in Caesarea, who could have just walked a few blocks to talk to Cornelius, explain to him the gospel, and then the whole situation would be done in probably half an hour? Philip, the evangelist that we learned about in Acts chapter 8, lived in Caesarea. So the point from God's perspective was not just that Cornelius would hear the gospel, but that Peter would have this experience of needing to go there and understand that God is actually open to the Gentiles hearing and receiving the good news. The journey, the the placement into the field where God is taking the new ground is just as important for the messenger as it is for the person receiving the message. Let's continue reading. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Everyone ever like had best intentions, tried to start a prayer time, and then just got hungry? It happens to me all the time. But no- notice God actually uses his hunger in this situation. He fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's referring to the fact that some animals in the Jewish faith, you were not meant to eat them. According to the the Jewish law, they were off limits. And so he's saying, you know, I've been a good boy my whole life. I've not eaten any of these animals. This happened, uh, and and then the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was at once taken up into heaven. And, you know, Peter does something here. I mean, imagine that. God speaks to you, and Peter says, no, Lord. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. Because earlier on, when Jesus is saying, it's going to be time for me to to go to the cross, and what does Peter say? No, don't go, Lord. Or what about when he says, you know, I'm going to wash all of your feet, my disciples. And Peter says, no, not my feet. I should be watching yours. He seems to make this habit out of responding that way, either because he thinks it's some kind of test or he's, I don't know, thinks he knows better than Jesus. Probably not that. Maybe it's triggering something from his childhood. Who knows? But it happens three times, and and Peter seems to go through this formula of needing to be told something three times for it to really impact him. You've got the, the fact that he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. You've got the fact that uh, when Jesus met him after the resurrection and he said, Peter, do you love me? Had to do it three times before the message kind of got through. I mean, anyone relate to that? God needing to, you know, be persistent and we're grateful that he is. But Peter is confused. It says, verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, he's like, do I, should I start a barbecue? What, what's the instruction here, God? Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was, spoken, uh, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, 
was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And then so Peter invited them in to be his guests. And this is an unusual scene indeed, because Peter, as a good Jew, should not be mixing with Gentiles. And the one, the one real barrier was that you can't be eating with them. All right, And so at this point, it's okay for him to sort of go out into the street and converse with them, but then to invite them in and to actually lodge them there overnight, because it's a two-day journey back to Caesarea, is very unusual. These walls are already coming down in Peter's life. How does the story pan out? The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And this is like a classic. Uh, we've we've had a, a, been in a small group, and, and occasionally we'll have someone come in who's like a brand new Christian. Has anyone had that experience before? And some of the stuff that they do and they say, you're just like, oh, I forgot. You know, this person doesn't have any context. And so Cornelius comes and worships at Peter's feet. And I'm sure Peter's like a bit like, well, hang on, guys. Like, you can't do this. So he, um, he says, no, no, you need to hop up. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent me. And let's just finish off these few verses and then we'll uh, unpack what we've read. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Let's just think through this timeline for a moment. Cornelius is praying in his house. An angel appears to him and says, you've, all of your prayers have been remembered. God's accepting what you've uh, what you're doing, right? You're taking steps towards God. And so God wants to show you the next step towards him. And so he gives them an, an explicit instruction. He says, go, send some men to Joppa, find Simon. He's in, in the house. I'll let me write down the address for you. Here you go. And uh, send him and come and just listen to him. I mean, it may as well have been an email, like in dot point form, like pretty clear instructions. Go and do this. Right, so that happens. And then the, he sends the, guy, the guys out on their journey. And then on the day that they're due to arrive, Peter knows nothing about this yet. God hasn't told Peter at this point that, you know, two days earlier he had spoken to a guy called Cornelius. But on that moment, God appears to Peter in this vision. And he sees this kind of confusing thing. Now, notice that there are three moments in this story where God speaks to somebody. The first one through an angel, dot point, email, here's the address, you know, there you go. Do you want me to write it down for you? Yeah, I can draw you a map to Joppa if you like. Second time, Peter gets a vision, a picture, and he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on, right? Is that, is that not unusual, Right, that God's given him something that requires interpretation. It requires him to actually think about what's going on. Because then immediately after that, 
God speaks to him explicitly, gives him instruction. He's like, downstairs, there are two guys. They've come for you. Uh, I've sent them. Go. Right? So you've got these two very explicit, clear instructions, and then in the middle, you have this picture. And he's just like, I'm confused. How do we work that out? Why is there explicit messages, and why is there something that seems encrypted? Well, the reason is that for God to actually do something and shift something in our heart, often it requires us to have a a more meaningful uh, experience or picture, and God knows how to get through to us. Because the vision that Peter saw dovetails with his physical experience of hunger, his personal identity as a devout Jew, and all of the corresponding perspectives that went with that. The reason that he needed a picture was because often we need a profound experience and sometimes a powerful picture for God to actually break the ground in us. And you see that all through the Old Testament prophecy that God is using images and pictures because, well, I guess we just relate to them. So it's not unusual, and we've seen many times, especially over the last weekend, of when God wants to speak through one person to another, often it comes in the form of a a picture. That's not something to be worried about or, or scared about because that's what God does. You can remember a picture and it can be meaningful for you. So, thinking about the timeline, it appears to Cornelius, the guys get sent, appears to Peter, the guys arrive, Peter's still confused. Okay, at what point does Peter actually figure out that he's not to go and start a barbecue and to cook up all of these animals? It says in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And you see, it was only after the first step of obedience that the clarity came. That picture was confusing for him to begin with, but there was a clear instruction. This is what I want you to do, Peter, and you will figure out the rest along the way. Because when God is wanting to take you into that new ground, he doesn't necessarily give you all of the details, draw you a a map of the scenario. The clarity comes on the journey of obedience. And even yesterday, I had someone that I was praying for and they had a, a, a step that they needed to take. I just sensed that, you know, there was a very clear step on their heart that they needed to take in order for the rest of the clarity to come. And uh, often that first step of obedience is actually baptism. And it was for, for that person. They'd been, they'd been thinking about baptism and then saying, oh, well, if something comes up, God, then I'll get baptized. And then in that moment, they thought, okay, why do I need a reason to obey what Jesus has said? The thing is, the clarity comes on the journey of obedience. And if you're frozen where you are, unsure, the picture's not going to make sense. Just think about what is it that you need to do? What is it that you know you need to do? It is the next step, and it should be clear on your heart. So how does this breaking of ground work? Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And fallow ground is a term for in, in uh, agriculture, in farming, for a field that has been left unused. There's not been any crop on that field. And what happens is that the surface becomes dried out by the sun and it becomes hard 
and it becomes cracked. And you, you can't plant any seed there. You can't throw it in there because it just sits on the surface and it's scorched. And so the, the prophet Hosea says that you need to break up the fallow ground in your heart. For God to actually be taking new ground, he needs to be breaking that ground in you. And so is there anything within us that we know, hang on a minute, this has been left unused. If God were to try and seed that area of my life, there would be no result because the ground is fallow. If we were to look at Peter, the things that needed broken in his experience in his life, the first one was his prejudice, which is his inherited values simply from the, the society that he grew up in. The idea that you know Jews were superior, that, that Gentiles, you, you couldn't mix with them. And, you know, pretty much all of us grow up thinking that we have the best set of social assumptions and societal assumptions, right? I mean, I'm sure you remember, if you've lived life a little bit, you, you probably remember the first time you realized, oh, actually, maybe that assumption I grew up with was a bit wrong. Maybe this thing that was normal in my family actually doesn't work out in everyone's family or, or it doesn't apply to, to everyone. And it's possible, it's possible that some of the assumptions that we've grown up with, whether that's because we've grown up in Australia, whether that's because we've grown up in a, in a Christian setting, some of those values might actually be off and they might actually not be biblical values. So I wonder, I wonder if there's anything that's, that's coming to your mind and we just trust that the Holy Spirit will tell us when those things need to change. So the first thing is Peter's prejudice, his set of inherited assumptions needed to change. The second one, and this one's much more likely to touch on some of us here, is his theology. Peter had to have his biblical understanding, his religious understanding broken for God to actually show him that actually that's a man-made structure, something that's been built on top of what is my true word, that God always was open to the Gentiles and you just needed to get to this point in order to do it. And it's, it's so easy. I mean, I, I have a, uh, when, I, when I was at Bible college, my theology lecturer had this great saying that I thought was really clever. Whenever he would quote a, uh, a theologian that had held a different position to him, um, he would, you know, articulate the position and then he'd say, oh, but so-and-so agrees with me now. And I, I just thought, oh, okay, all right, they must have changed his mind. And then if, after a few times we tweaked, every time he said that, it was because the, that person was dead. And so now they agree with him. Anyway, we tend to assume that we've got it sorted out, that actually what I believe about what the Bible says and, and how to interpret that is the right way to do it. And often, actually, it's a man-made structure. It's something that, that we've picked up that is actually not what God wants. And God needs to challenge that and to change that, to break it up in order to take us into new ground. And the other thing is Peter's pride, Peter's sense of accomplishment, his sense of identity, which is found in that thing where he says, no, I've never eaten anything like that. Not me, God. And so what God's trying to say to him is actually that thing that you've put your pride in, that achievement that you've been you know, working on, it, it is not as important as you think it is. It in fact means nothing in the grand scheme of things. And so God had to break his pride as well. 
And so maybe there are some aspects of, of our hearts that God is wanting to break ground in. And so let me give you some help to be able to diagnose these. You need to ask the question, where could God be wanting me to enter new ground around me in my life and in my family? And, you, you know, why don't we just take a moment, why don't you close your eyes and just prayerfully think with God? Because I think that the, the correct assumption is that God wants to use you in the space that you're in. I think if you you sit with the opposite assumption and you say, you know, God doesn't want to use me or God's not going to use me or there's nothing for me to do in my scenario, well, I would probably challenge that. So I want you to think prayerfully, where might God be wanting to take new ground? You know, just as I was, I was praying over the kind of responses we might have, I think that God wants to highlight three possible areas in, in people tonight for the new ground around you. The first one is uh, people who don't know God, people who don't know Jesus. Is there a sphere of influence around you where God is inviting you to join a conversation he's already having with someone else? But there are barriers stopping you from doing that. The second one is intimacy with God. Is God inviting you to new ground of intimacy with him? And what are the barriers? Is there something stopping you from getting there? And the third one, and I'm just going to have to go with what I sense the Holy Spirit say here, the third one is, is adventure. Is God inviting you into a new ground of adventure in your relationship with God? Is there a new frontier and a new way of, you know, trusting and, and, you know, obeying with God that maybe you're closed off to? Maybe you're like, well, out of my comfort zone, God. And I believe there might be some people that God is wanting to invite into new ground in a sense of adventure in your relationship with him. So if God's you know, putting his finger on, on anything there and you're, you're welcome to open your eyes, the, the questions that you need to ask is, are there any barriers that are stopping me from entering that new ground? And I want you to assess those barriers against the character of God. Am I afraid? Usually fear is a result of some lie that's made its way into your belief. Something like, actually God's not going to look after me if I was to do that. Actually it's going to turn out bad for me. Actually what God wants me to do is not good. They're all lies that we can believe. Are you afraid? Or is there some uh, prejudice or assumption that you've inherited that, well, maybe you're waking up to the fact that now that's actually not biblical. Or do we hold a, a perspective from Scripture that prevents me from entering that space? Right? Is God calling me to something good and yet I'm, I'm resisting him because of my interpretation of the Bible? You know, this happened to me at, when I uh, was applying to teach at a school, and I applied to teach at a Catholic school, and, uh, you know, in a, in a previous life, right, I, I went to Baptist Theological College, which is basically a three-year degree in why we aren't still Catholic. 
Um, so I used to be, you know, very much down down that line. But I, you need to understand that this is a this is a past me, right? I love our Catholic brothers and sisters, and I've had God's taken me on a journey to really unpack uh, that whole situation. And part of that was this moment where I'd applied to teach at a, at a Catholic school, and I was just praying about it uh, as I was driving. And I was driving past the school, and I was like, "Can I do this? Like, I'm not sure about the whole Mary thing, and." Uh, you know, how, how can I be in this school? And I just felt the Holy Spirit whisper to me, he's like, fancy that. One child of mine refusing to go there because the other children of mine. And I went, oh. <laughs> it was gentle, but it was clear. And I knew that that ground needed to be broken in my heart. And that I was holding a perspective that actually wasn't biblical. Perhaps there are places of pride that you're only just now recognizing. Actually, they, they don't make you a better Christian. These things that I've treasured, that I've you know, built up, that I've held on to, well, actually, it doesn't make me a better Christian, does it? They don't make me a more loving person. They don't make me a more powerful witness. If anything, they actually put people off. It's just pride, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, the thing is, what happens when you break up fallow ground? When you actually put the effort and the time and you need heavy farm machinery to break up that ground, well, what happens is that the soil underneath that fallow ground is actually full of nutrients. The, the hard layer on the top from the, from the dried, it's been dried out by the sun, has actually protected the layer underneath and a lot of the nutrients have come to the surface and so ground that is fallow, that has been cultivated, actually makes some of the best ground for God growing things in your heart. So I wonder if there's any fallow ground that we need to be uh, breaking up this morning, this, this evening. And I'll just invite the, the bands back up, and I want to also just invite our communion stewards. Um, we're going to take communion in, in a moment, and there's a moment in Mark chapter 2. where Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And we've been on a journey as a, as a church and as a ministry team, we've been thinking through actually, well, where is God wanting to take us? And we believe that there is perhaps some new ground around us as a, as a church that we need to be considering how is it that God wants us to enter that new ground? Now, we need to understand all of these, these things that we've laid out, right? That God is wanting to take that new ground, but that He wants to use us. Right? And that for us to be in that position, we're not there to fight and to win based on our own strength and our own ability, but we're simply there to stand next to the victory that has already happened. So we've got to deal with the obstacles for us actually getting there. What is the new ground around us as a church? Well, did you know Australia is more secular than ever? When did it stop being our mission to reach the lost? 
or to help the needy or to be a healing presence and a signpost for the truth to a broken and hurting world and to families that are struggling and to lonely individuals. When did that stop being our mission? What is stopping us from entering that field of battle, which we need to understand God's already won. God's already gone ahead of us, but he wants to use us. He wants to use his church in that space. Is there anything that we could do? Is there anything that's stopping us from getting there? And I wonder if I was to simply ask the question, would we hold on to what we have so tightly that we wouldn't make some changes if it meant that more people could come? If it meant that God could reach the community around us? Are we so concerned with with getting our own experience that we wouldn't allow God to change some of those things? And you know what? As normal, we'll we'll have some time of of ministry and we have some words of knowledge as well to, to talk through. So we will have some prayer available, but I just want you to consider this because... I don't want to sort of call a a response, you know, come and get prayer for this thing because I think that it needs to be a bit longer than that. I think that it's something that we need to be thinking about tomorrow when we're praying and the next day and over the next few weeks. Is there something in us that is stopping us from taking the ground, from going to where God is calling us, from stepping into where God is calling us? And so as we take uh, communion this evening, we've got station uh, over here and over here. There is gluten-free at both stations, we need to remember that Jesus shed his blood, his body was broken, and this blood is his blood of the new covenant, which means that we have new life, but it means that we are a new wineskin, that God is putting new wine into us. And so as we take communion together, I would just uh, ask you to reflect, is there a way in which I can accept these elements as a proclamation to God to saying, yes, I'm willing. I'm willing to be made new. I'm willing to have that ground broken, whatever it is. Maybe, maybe it's not clear for you right now. Maybe God hasn't laid his finger on exactly what it is. But would this act now be a, just a proclamation of, of yes, God? I'll say yes. So in your own time, you can come and receive the elements and take them back to where you are. And then we'll uh, take them together and I'll pray and then we'll sing. So you can come and collect them. 